This podcast is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law with funding support from the NOAA Sea Grant College Program. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome back to season two of the National Sea Grant Law Center's Law on the Half Shell podcast. This is the seventh episode of the season, and I'm your host, Law Center Ocean and Coastal Law Fellow, Zachary Klein. This episode may feel more familiar to our audience than some from this season because rather than looking into COVID's impact aboard vessels offshore or on its impact on broad sectors of the economy, episode seven deals with topics that are a little closer to home like plastics, masks, and social distancing. For starters, we now know that the use of plastics, including non-recyclable single-use plastics, went up during the pandemic, and coastal areas can be particularly vulnerable to the impacts of plastics pollution. Plus, much as was and remains the case in the U.S.'s non-coastal regions, COVID significantly affected the ability of people in coastal areas to come together and stay within close distances for extended periods of time. This might not jump out as a big deal to many of our audience members, but this meant that certain environmentally helpful aspects of coastal culture in the United States, such as beach cleanups, were significantly impeded by the pandemic. And just as plastics use and waste started to climb, also affected were many of the beach or outdoors-based summer camps and other organized outdoor activities that are popular during the summer months. And all of these suddenly had to reinvent themselves while navigating the many risks that the pandemic posed for them. Law Center Senior Research Counsel Tara Bowling is taking the lead on our tour of these issues in this episode. Along the way, Tara's interviews with Jill Bartolotta of Ohio Sea Grant and Diana Burich, Director of Education for New Jersey Sea Grant, will shine some badly needed light on the legal drama that COVID created along the U.S.'s coasts on a day-to-day basis, as well as how our nation's coastal communities adapted to and overcame these historic challenges. This is Tara Bowling, and I'm with Jill Bartolotta, who is an extension educator for the Ohio Sea Grant Program. And today we're going to talk a little bit about plastic and the pandemic, specifically PPE and how that's become more of a problem with litter during the pandemic. So um, worldwide, um, COVID-19 has meant that we need to rely on personal protective equipment like masks, face shields to keep ourselves from getting sick. And in many places, those are required by governments or businesses. But as we have used those more and more, that's also led to the increased production and use of these masks that are sometimes discarded at our oceans and shorelines. You know, you see these paper masks on the ground. They seem like paper almost, but... They're actually plastic. So I know it's hard. I mean, we look at some stuff, you know, 
And people think, oh, it looks like paper, so it must be made out of paper, but they're not. They're actually made out of plastic fibers. And since the pandemic started a couple of years ago, we've definitely seen an increase in the amount of these PPE items being found on cleanups. And also, I don't know if, you know, you've been going to the grocery store and you just, I mean, I've seen gloves lying in parking lots. I've seen masks lying in parking lots, wipes and wipes are also plastic fibers. That's why you can't flush them down a toilet because they don't degrade because they are made of plastic fibers. So we're definitely seeing these on beach cleanups. And the reason we're concerned is, so first of all, masks, you know, they have that loop that goes around your ear. Well, that creates a circle. And anything that's circular in the environment, an animal can get into it really easily, but it's hard for them to get out of it. So I don't know if you remember in grade school, you know, we were told to cut the six pack rings. Well, really, you should be cutting anything that's circular. So I've made the personal choice to use reusable masks that I can just wash every day. I feel comfortable using that. Some people don't, and I fully understand. But if you are using the disposable masks, you should, first of all, make sure they're properly disposed of in your garbage can, but also cut them because yes, we don't intend for our trash to end up in the natural environment, but you know, things happen. We see stuff fly off garbage cans, you know, maybe an animal gets into your trash at night. And so just make sure you're cutting those masks before you um, dispose of them if you're using the single use ones. And then it's not going to happen right now, but years and years down the road, as these plastic items, whether they're gloves, wipes, or masks break down, they're going to become microplastics and microfibers. And those are the plastics that we're seeing animals ingesting. The fibers we're seeing entwined in all living organisms. Um, we're finding them in human bodies. And the chemicals associated with plastic, they're cancer-causing and they're endocrine disruptors. And the endocrine system is our hormones and those control all the functions within living organisms, bodies. And so we aren't really sure yet how these microplastics can negatively affect humans and wildlife, but we do know the chemicals associated with them can be harmful. It's, it's a problem now, but then they'll continue to create problems many, many years down the road. It's important to keep them out of the natural environment. Yeah, those are all great points and really not something people are really thinking about when there's a pandemic. They're just thinking, oh, I've got to protect myself. Exactly. So that's why I always encourage reusable if you feel comfortable doing that. And then if you do have to use single use, just making sure you're disposing disposing of it properly and not just flinging it on the ground. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, speaking of disposing the of the masks, from what I understand, they're not easily recyclable. A lot of local recycling programs don't take masks. Is that correct? That is correct. No PPE equipment, masks, gloves, face shields, anything like that. None of that is allowed in curbside recycling. And the reason is, is they're low value plastics. So they can't be made into anything else. And then there's also the contamination concern with biohazards and stuff like that. So when you have hospitals who are using a lot of this equipment, um, they're not able to recycle any of their medical equipment. It has to go to landfill or a lot of medical waste is actually incinerated at the facility because of those biohazard concerns. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen doing lake cleanups, the PPE there and how you've handled that? Yeah. So these were items we, we never found on beach cleanups before because 
they they were not fortunately, you know, getting into the waste stream from hospitals because that's really the only place that this equipment was really being used um, before the pandemic. But now that it was freely being used, I found a lot of masks and they are usually tangled up and stuff, you know, because of the circular and the strings and stuff like that. We've find gloves, the disposable gloves, we find those pretty often now. And then we've seen just an increase in plastic packaging in general. So this is going to be carry out containers, styrofoam containers, just because, you know, there's been a 370% increase in the amount of PPE equipment made, there's been a 40% increase in the amount of plastic packaging being used because of the pandemic. And so, when you have more of these items being used, the likelihood that they'll end up in the water is greater. And we see them on beach cleanups. We'll see them along the edges. And then I'm out on the lake a lot paddling. And I, I often see gloves and um, masks. Gloves float pretty well on the surface. The masks, um, they start kind of sinking a little bit. So that, that makes it harder to clean up as something starts sinking. And then when we do cleanups, like I said, safety is a big part of cleanups. We do safety talks with all our volunteers. We make sure everyone, we use reusable gloves that we wash after each use so that they're they're clean for the next use. If people aren't comfortable with that, we do offer disposable gloves. So everyone has gloves. And then, like I said, I give people scoops or the spaghetti or salad tongs, or we have, you know, those long trash pickers that people can use as well, just if, if they are concerned about picking up any items. And then everything goes in a garbage bag, and it goes into a waste bin to go to landfill. So safety has always been important on beach cleanups. Now, we just have a few more items that we talk to people about. So have you seen any local governments kind of doing outreach about PPE litter or trying to pass ordinances or anything like that? So I have seen more local nonprofits that do the cleanups because like I said, this wasn't an item we were finding on cleanups. And then all of a sudden, you know, we pretty much started seeing them everywhere. And so a lot of local nonprofits are doing outreach they're doing social media posts, especially with the masks, you know, and cutting masks so wildlife can't get entangled in them. They're also encouraging people to use reusables if they feel comfortable doing that. As far as local ordinances, from a regulatory standpoint, I haven't seen anyone talking about cleaning these items up or anything like that. At least in my area, we we tend to go the opposite direction <laughs> um, with environmental ordinances. You know, we just passed a plastic bag preemption law. So <laughs> we, yeah, we don't have any ordinances in at least the state of Ohio that are trying to reduce the amount of single-use plastics being used or ending up in the natural environment. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, Jill and I did a lot of work on uh, plastic <laughs> bag bans um, a couple years ago. Um, and we found that a lot of states preempt these local ordinances that, mm-hmm. that ban plastic bags. So it'll be interesting to see if anything similar happens with local governments trying to regulate the use of PPE or littering. Yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, straws, styrofoam. I think PPE is, you know, a, a, you know, a, you have to be careful because they are a necessary item for our safety and health right now. So I think people are, are I don't know, I think they're not wanting to address it because there's concerns because it is a sensitive topic. 
Some great info and advice. Thank you so much, Jill, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to talk. Hi, Diana. How are you doing? I'm good, Sarah. How are you? I'm well. Um, thank you for joining me today. Just to start out with, um, New Jersey Sea Grant Consortium is a little bit different from some of the other Sea Grant programs. Is that right? In New Jersey, we also function as a nonprofit organization. So we have 23 member institutions. There are colleges and universities in New Jersey that are members of Sea Grant. And um, just like every Sea Grant uh, program, we, we work with all of the colleges in the state, whether they're members or not. The education program, y'all conduct a wide variety of programs, including field trips, camps, classes. And then I saw that in a typical year, um, your K-12 through field trip program serves 20,000 students. Could you kind of just take us through pre-pandemic, what a typical spring or summer would look like for your education program? What are you gearing up for? What kind of events? How many events? Like most other Sea Grant programs, we get started with the education uh, in-person programming we plan in the winter time. We have, I'm going to just take field trips. So you mentioned that we have field trips. We have scout programs. We have in-school programs. We have a summer camp program. We hold college classes here. We have interns. We work with pre-service teachers. So there's always a lot going on in the springtime. Schools want to bring their students for field trips in the spring, particularly after they're done with state testing. Throughout the year, we, we schedule field trips. And at the height of our season, we, we, we can actually accommodate about 550 students a day. Ocean Fun Days is our big public outreach event. Um, it celebrates everything ocean. We host it the weekend before Memorial Day weekend every summer. It's a two location event. We hold the event in Ocean County, New Jersey, and also in uh, Monmouth County. So Island Beach State Park and Gateway National Recreation Area, which is where Sea Grant's headquarters is. And throughout the course of the weekend, we will have approximately 10,000 visitors to the event. The exhibitors can number in more than 50 for the in-person event. It's very family friendly. We're not selling anything. We're just sharing information. It's an opportunity for researchers to showcase what they're working on. And we invite like-minded groups to have tables and to interact with the public. We offer free programs, field trip type programs, birding, seining, beach walks, and there's a lot of uh, swag for children to collect from the exhibitors. Um, like I said, we don't sell anything, um, but lots of fun face painting and, and tattoos. And the kids can learn how to paddleboard and surf and, and even cast a fishing line. So that's really a fun event. And a lot of work goes into it. We go into the summertime and we have usually about five weeks of camp. And we'll accommodate 30 students a week. Um, and they range in, in grades from going into third grade to going into ninth grade. All of the activities for all of the programs are hands-on outdoor experiential learning. The ocean and marine sciences are, they're really taught best that way outdoors. Kids getting their feet wet and their hands dirty. I mentioned the college classes um, because we're not based in university. 
we do have adjunct professors teaching intro to marine science here, mostly a field-based course too. The location is really fantastic. We have classroom space as well. We have uh, two classrooms. Um, they're, they're basic teaching classrooms with microscopes, fish tanks, and water quality kits and, and other things that, that we would utilize. That all sounds amazing. And I kind of want to go to camp or a field trip now. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I have to admit, I wish these opportunities were available when I was a kid too. Well, so that sounds like an incredible amount of coordination and planning. So if we think back to the spring of 2020, when COVID first happened, everything kind of came to a grinding halt for y'all, I suppose, as just like it did for the rest of the world. So what what were your first steps? Did y'all just go ahead and cancel everything? How long were you shut down? You know, if I think back, we uh, we were sent home on March 19th. We had to come in come into the office, get our computers by that time, and everyone was working remotely, just like the rest of the world. Once every once once staff got settled, uh, the education department. I mentioned the seasonals, but we do have two full time uh, staff members and three part time. And once everyone got settled and into their homes, we met right away and you know, what's to do. Um, Most people thought that we would be closed just for a week or two. I think that was the common idea. But once we realized that we were all going to be remote for a while, yep, we canceled all of those field trips, refunded all of those deposits. And I mentioned earlier that we're a nonprofit. So our fee-based programs serve as match for our federal dollars. So Okay, no panic yet, but I have a fantastic staff of educators, honestly, just like the rest of the educators in the network. Everybody is really flexible, I'll say, in, in um, you know, they're quick to pivot, they're quick to learn new skills. It, we realized that we were going to need to, we were going to have to adapt some of our programs for the virtual sphere. We already had an ocean hazards and swimming safety program that was a presentation that we were giving to schools and to libraries. That one was the first one to go virtual because basically what we did was a lively interactive presentation and we had a Jeopardy style game to interact with the audience. So that was really easy to go virtual. Our scout coordinator, same thing. She took the most popular program for both Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, which is a hiker program. And she, she made it, um, we, we, we had a, actually two versions. She created an asynchronous version. So a rec- pre-recorded version that um, Scouts could access. Um, and there was also a synchronous version, a live presentation. And throughout the rest of the spring, we took our newly developed microscope, uh, microplastics program, made that virtual. And with that one, we did the activities that we would do with the students in person. We sent teachers materials, resources ahead of time to prepare the kids and asked them to come prepared to the presentation with a glass of water and a piece of plastic. And we did a density experiment with them. So we tried to really keep it interactive. So um, that was really the part for the course until we got into camp. Right. 
That's really cool. Y'all were able to figure out a way to make it work, even yes. over Zoom. <laughs> Did y'all have to figure out new technologies as you were moving through this? We we definitely did. Um, I almost want to say that it was a shock that we weren't coming to the office and we weren't, um, you know, to our location and we weren't getting into the programs right away, which is what we normally do. So with that quick pivot in trying to figure out how to make virtual learning interactive and effective, the staff did a lot of research on their own, lots of video watching on YouTube. I looked for webinars that we could utilize And one of the things that I think that was really very important was keeping in touch with colleagues, whether through professional organizations or other Sea Grant educators. It was so important to see what other people were doing, how they were handling it. Um, So there was a lot of information sharing amongst colleagues. Let's move on to when things started to open back up again. And y'all wanted to move beyond the virtual sphere and think, okay, how can we safely reopen or can we? What kind of guided your, your planning and deciding to reopen? So we're really big on needs assessments. I think they're very important for any type of program. You really, you're, you're working with your stakeholders. You're looking to see how you can be a resource for them. We sent needs assessments to educators that we work with and also to camp families. So we started with our this past spring with our college course. Um, Most of the students that take the intro to marine bio course, they don't have marine science as a course, a field-based course in their school. So we were pretty concerned about how we were going to go about uh, with equipment, with even like liability issues. Mm -hmm. So we did contact the law center a few times actually, um, initially with the virtual programs because we were concerned about the COPA compliance, which which is um, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule. So we just wanted to make sure that we were safe with regard to utilizing uh, another platform, a virtual platform to interact with the students. But then when we were coming back to in-person, it was really important to make sure that our organization was protected from any liability. So we created a liability waiver, the illness waiver, And we utilize that for our college program and also for the camp program. We did a lot of research. We consulted the New Jersey Department of Health websites with regards to um, programs, school programs. We were really concerned about keeping people safe while they were utilizing equipment. So, for instance, in all of our field trip programs, all of the students have the opportunity to same for species diversity, and we utilize waders. So we suspended waiter use. We have 50 pairs of waders that would require a lot of sanitization. So the weather was getting nice. We were able to have the kids go seining in their bathing suits, which is a great thing to do in the summer. Microscopes, they wipe the microscopes down. We purchased spray disinfecting apparatuses so that we can utilize them in the classroom, but we really minimized indoor activities and kept most of the activities outdoor. 
I do want to circle back to the New Jersey Sea Grant Consortium. When y'all switched to doing virtual, you had some concerns about information sharing. Um, There are some federal laws, such as the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule, that kind of say how children can participate online, you know, what information can be shared. So what were your concerns with that? Of course, we wanted to be in compliance. The assumption is, is that the schools would be. They, of course, need to. But when it came to program, us being able to deliver programs through our Zoom account, we did need to make sure that the school could utilize our Zoom account. And many times they couldn't. So we really learned that we needed to ask them if they wanted to set up a meeting with us and then give us hosting or co-hosting capabilities so that we could share screen with the teacher and the students. And, you know, the, even the nature of the, of the virtual programs changed because what started with all of the students at home on their own devices wound up towards the end of the school year being a virtual presentation for an entire class. So really our concerns were whether or not student information was going to be collected by Zoom or Google Meets. And and we know that both Zoom and Google Meets have to comply with the COPA laws or the rule. So we just really needed to make sure that we were, like I said, doing things correctly. And most times we utilized the accounts of the schools because the upgrades that the schools have um, have those firewalls and and sort of the the school district websites too. So they they have a different setup than than we really do. Uh, and particularly because we're not located in a university, I would say that we have a little bit more technology wise, we're a little bit more on the basic side. Yeah, thanks for for addressing those. Those are things you know we wouldn't have considered you know pre pandemic. Well, you know, I think. I think about um, the reasons why we reached out in, to you guys in the first place. And so there was the issue about being vaccinated also. And we realized that we can't ask our employees to be vaccinated. I know things are starting to change in the country now, but we're talking months ago. Mm-hmm. So I um, shared vaccination site information with staff because people were trying to get appointments mm-hmm. and most of the staff was, was pretty amenable. They were, they wanted to protect themselves and that was great, but you do always have people that are not interested in getting vaccinated for whatever reason. And the concern for, with us is if they're interacting with children. Mm-hmm. So I almost want to say that because we were so heavy on the virtual side in the spring and the summer, that it wasn't a concern yet. Mm-hmm. We here at New Jersey Sea Grant, we had the opportunity to opt out initially of wearing a mask in the building by providing a copy of our vaccine card. But with the emergence of the new variants, mm-hmm. we've reverted back. We're also in a national park. So we do take guidance from the National Park Service. I feel, sometimes I feel like we're under so many different umbrellas. Right. <laughs> So what are some of the takeaways from this experience? One of the things is that I find most important is to know what your stakeholders want. And it's so important to keep up your networks, to keep the interaction with your stakeholders. Like I said earlier, we utilize needs assessments. We asked for, you know, of course, very honest feedback. People were very honest with how they wanted to go forward. 
For instance, last summer when we were planning for camp, we reached out to our camp families and asked, did they want in-person for their children or not? And 93% of them said, nope, they did not want to have in-person interaction. We did a, a, almost the same needs assessment to them this year. And we have, we have a few hundred people on our contact list. And the response was overwhelmingly no virtual interaction. They wanted their, their children outside. So I, I, I think it's so important to not only know how to serve your, your stakeholders, but also not to waste resources. You can, you can take so much time developing something to present online and then nobody wants it. So that, that's really important. I mentioned earlier too that interaction with colleagues was invaluable. I attended a number of open forums that were sponsored by the Alliance for New Jersey Environmental Educators. And there was a lot of talk. There were, there were environmental educators from all over the state, from nonprofits, from county, from state parks. And it was interesting to see how people were moving forward, how they were adapting. Some groups had more resources than others. But the idea sharing was just great. And people were very accessible to each other. And with regards to meeting your stakeholders' needs, you have to try to accommodate them the best that you can. You know, you might be limited in resources or you might be limited in in skills. So hopefully if you have a great staff like I do, they're watching videos or they're reading online articles or they're attending webinars to, to make themselves better at their jobs. And it's important to be able to provide those opportunities for them too. Every time I find something that would benefit our program, I uh, encourage the staff to attend. Another one with regard to employees, I was very concerned with, with staff. You know, some people might be struggling at home during this time or alone and feeling isolated. We continued to meet on a weekly basis. We Zoom met. I called people just really to give them the opportunity to let them know that Sea Grant or their you know, management cared about them and what they were going through and were available and if they needed anything. And you know, occasionally dropping off cookies didn't hurt either, right? <laughs> I, bet pe- I bet people were dropping off bread at their neighbors like crazy. And luckily, very soon after the lockdown, funding opportunities became available. So I, I felt I felt like at one point it was so overwhelming to look in your inbox and, and see the opportunities that came along. And I absolutely was grateful for that because it was able to supplement either technology or projects. So I think uh, that was helpful as well. I think open communication is really key. Yeah. whether it's with your staff or your stakeholders. Thank you so much, uh, Diana, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a pleasure discussing this. This episode has been a prescient reminder that COVID hasn't just impacted coastal communities, in all the unique ways that we've discussed on the podcast this season. In addition to the radically disruptive impacts, 
coastal communities are dealing with to the cruise industry, to the seafood industry, and to fisheries, among others, that coastal communities must still deal with the fallout of how COVID has disrupted everything around the cruises, seafood, and fisheries too. And the cruel irony of beach cleanups needing to be canceled while more plastic entered circulation and largely ended up being improperly discarded is not lost on us either. Yet, there are clearly some glimmers of hope on the horizon. The Law Center's immense thanks to our guests on today's episode, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to yet another episode of the Law on the Half Shell podcast. Until next week, everyone. Thank you.